We draw our attention as a church family today and this Passion Week to the most sacred moments in human history, the death of the Son of God. And the verses that we have before us today are unfathomable uh, and incredibly sobering as they recount to us the agonizing steps of a condemned Savior, the injustice of a crucified Messiah, and the guttural cry of the King. And I just want you to know, I come to this passage today, I, I, I have no levity in my heart about this. There's no levity in this message. And I don't see how you really can. Uh, when you really understand what is found here. This is a section of scripture and a moment in history that is anguish and sorrow and guilt-ridden pain. But it is here that the Gospel of Matthew takes us, and last week we saw the events that lead up to this moment. A kangaroo court of false witnesses, a hit job manipulating an ambitious Roman governor, a cohort of Roman soldiers mocking, beating, and crowning with a crown of thorns the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 32, Matthew 27. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. It was the practice of the Romans to force the condemned to carry their own cross. And we are all likely familiar with the image of of Jesus carrying a large T-shaped cross. Most likely, actually, historically, he was uh, only carrying the crossbar of that cross. And to see this moment, Jesus is in an incredibly uh, emaciated condition. Even before he begins this walk to the cross, let's remind ourselves of what has led him to this moment. He began that night before in the upper room with his disciples and a long teaching there Uh, We know it as the Upper Room Discourse, uh, about the nature of salvation and his mission. And we have, of course, him washing the disciples' feet. And after they have the Passover together, they go to Gethsemane. And when they arrive at Gethsemane, Jesus has this, like, heart-wrenching moment as he grapples with what he knows the Father's will is for him. He sweats. He's like sweating. One one gospel says like drops of blood. Another gospel says drops of blood. The point is this, that he is completely engulfed in emotion. Shortly after that, as, as a betrayal by his own disciple Judas and a kiss, he is arrested by the Romans. He watches all of his disciples run away and leave him. He is taken to Caiaphas' house where he is beaten and he is interrogated through the night. During that time, he suffers the uh, moment there as he, 
here's Peter the third time, deny that he knew him. Early in the morning, he is taken to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. He's mocked by Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate now is in a political pickle. And he tries to get out of it with a kind of half measure known as flogging. Jesus was flogged, and this was a itself devastating thing to endure as he had 39 lashes with a whip that was multi-stranded, every strand with sharp rocks and edges on it, 39 times. Many men died simply from the flogging, but Jesus survived it, yet his back was ripped to shreds. And after all of this abuse and at the cry of the crowds, Jesus condemns him to crucifixion. And along the way, as you read the account, he's beaten by this cohort of soldiers and this happens and there's just a lot of that going on all along the way. The soldiers would have placed that crossbow on Jesus' crossbar on Jesus' back and would have tied it with ropes, uh, tied his arms to it with ropes. And they would have begun the walk out to outside of the wall of the city. With them, there would have been many people. In fact, there's estimates up to 4,000 people might have been a part of this processional as somebody so famous as, as Jesus, just days before the whole city was seismically rocking and rolling as he descended the Mount of Olives on that donkey and everybody was singing and cheering and He's the best known person in all of Israel and now condemned to die. And so you have a processional where Jesus would have been carrying that crossbar and there would have been a small cohort of Roman soldiers that were with him. And then you have all of the other religious leaders who want to see this happen. They've been conspiring for it uh, for some time. And then you have the masses, the spectacle watchers that just want to see what's going on. And this huge processional begins to make its way outside of the city wall. He gets somewhere near the gate and under the weight of the crossbar and with all of the things that he'd already endured, he collapses. He is physically unable to carry it any further. And I'd like for us to pause for a moment and meditate on Jesus collapsing in weakness. Of course, the soldiers don't care. He's just another condemned piece of meat to them. And they have a job to do. We know from history that to be a part of the Roman execution squad was a very desirable assignment. And these would have been men who had rose through the ranks and who arrived at this uh, place. They do not want to lose that call that, that job. This is, a, again, a very desired one. And so, especially with a high-profile man like this Jesus of Nazareth, the Romans do not want him to die along the road. They want him to make it 
and they want him crucified. They need him to be crucified. And so the soldiers see Jesus laying there, unable to carry the crossbar, and they use some ingenuity, and they say, hey, let's just get somebody to carry this for us. They're not going to do it. They're Roman soldiers. And they look over, and out of the crowd, they pick a guy, the text says, named Simon. Simon from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene was a city in North Africa. Why is a guy from North Africa there in Jerusalem? Most likely, he was there because of Passover. This is the biggest thing on the calendar, the Jewish calendar, and thousands of people came from all over, you know, at least reasonably that could make it around the known world to be a part of Passover. So he is probably a Jew there for Passover. Little did he know how his life was about to change. The soldiers say, hey, carry the crossbar. Why did Simon do it? Because swords are very compelling objects. You carry the cross now. And so he just, okay. And so they took the bar, crossbar off of Jesus. They placed it upon Simon. And with a grunt, he began to carry it. With Jesus following behind him and the soldiers following behind him. Now, side note here. We could ask, what's the effect of carrying the crossbar for Jesus of Nazareth? Did you know that the Gospel of Mark identifies Simon as the father of Rufus and Alexander? And Mark writes his Gospel to the Roman Christians, and it's as if they all know Rufus and Alexander. And we even have a reference that may, is likely them as well in Acts 19. In other words, it is very possible that Simon of Cyrene, as a result of this experience with Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, and his sons grew up to be followers of Jesus and are mentioned by name in the New Testament. You might meet Simon and his family someday in heaven. The text says, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. The Romans wanted to crucify people on AD 94. They didn't want it on some side road in some back corner. They wanted it on the most prominent spot in the city. Because crucifixion for the Romans was not just sort of an easy way to kill people. It was about propaganda. It was about intimidation. They wanted it to be where there would be maximum exposure to the most people because essentially, crucifixion is saying this, you defy the Romans, this is what happens to you. They're wanting to intimidate the entire population away from revolution. They come to a spot that must have been a notorious spot named Golgotha, place of a skull. It just has sort of an ominous ring to it, doesn't it? Hints at maybe a bald hill, right, like a skull, no vegetation. Golgotha, by the way, translates into Latin calva, which is where we get the word Calvary, if you've ever wondered that. It's not actually in the Bible. Upon arriving, they offer him, the text says, wine mixed with gall to drink. Now, I've always read this to be that it was a kind of mercy that was extended to Jesus, that here's a little bit of 
you know, a little bit of intoxication that maybe will dull the pain of what is about to happen to you. That's how I've always read it. But there's actually a, another explanation that is more likely. Mark tells us that the wine was, uh, was mixed with myrrh uh, to drink. Uh, Matthew says gall. Myrrh is very, very bitter. The mixture of these two would have been a very unpleasant drink, especially to a dehydrated man. This would be like at the end of the hub run yesterday, them handing out vinegar to drink. Like, you don't do that when somebody is dehydrated and really thirsty. They want water. And if you did that and you did it intentionally, what would you call it? You'd call it a cruel torment. And that is likely what this was. They said, hey, are you really, oh, you, you can have a little bit of this. Jesus takes a small drink of it and spits it out, and the soldiers laugh. One more, one more pain for Jesus. Verse 35 is a holy verse. Notice what it says. And when they had crucified him. And when they had crucified him. Six words. Matthew gives no comment on what that meant. Matthew, in fact, doesn't dwell on the physical sufferings of Jesus. In fact, the Bible doesn't really dwell on the physical sufferings as much as the spiritual and the emotional and really then the theological meaning of crucifixion. And one reason maybe that Matthew doesn't do it is that he is writing to Jews who likely had seen people crucified. Why go into all the gory details? You all know what I'm talking about. You have seen the Romans do this. But we here today have never witnessed a crucifixion. And I want all of us to understand what is behind those six words in this verse. So here's what happened. Upon arriving at Golgotha, Simon of Cyrene, his part of the story is done. He would have dropped that crossbar and the soldier said, you know, get out of here or whatever. And so he steps away. Two of the soldiers would have dug a hole in the ground for the vertical piece of the cross. And they would have placed that vertical piece with a notch in it, in that hole, maybe use rocks to sort of wedge it in so it was tight. And now the attention goes to Jesus. The whole goal of crucifixion is to degrade the victim. And part of the shame, for the Romans at least, was that they would crucify their victims naked. And so probably every picture that you've ever seen of the crucifixion is not accurate because they would have most likely removed all of his clothes. We know they gamble for his clothes in just a moment. So Jesus is likely stripped of all of his clothes. Imagine that. We're talking about the Son of God here, friends. Once the upright was in place, the soldiers would have then come back to the chief executioner and would have assisted him in essentially attaching Jesus to the crossbeam. And the way they would do this is they would have placed Jesus on his back in the center of the crossbeam, stretched out his arm, not all the way. Sometimes you see pictures of Jesus where he's like stretched, you know, like elastic on the cross. That's not at all what crucifixion was all about. In fact, it was very much about having a lot of leeway, a lot of uh, a room, because it was essentially a writhing experience to die on the cross. 
So not all the way out, partially out. They would have measured where his, right here in the wrist, where that spot would be, taken his arm away, and made a hole in the crossbeam first. Then they would have pulled his arm back, found the hole, found his wrist, and they would have driven through that wrist a nail that would have passed through and into the hole that they had made for the nail. Quickly, they would have moved to the other arm and they would have done the same, making room for flexing and movement on the cross. And I imagine in this moment that even his enemies got silent, right? To hear, to see him, here's a fellow human being, and to see that kind of a bam right through the arm, just that moment, even your harshest enemies would have to feel something, don't you think? I just see the whole place getting incredibly quiet, and to hear that don't, don't, don't. One soldier would have held Jesus in the middle with one on each side of the beam, and now they are moving him to the vertical piece. And this is where it would have been difficult because Jesus is basically dead weight at this point, plus the beam. And they would have gone over to, the, to that vertical beam, and the two on the side would have had some sort of a forked device that would have pushed, and the guy in the middle around the midsection would have hoisted him and lifted that beam up to where it could slide into the notch that had been made for it. Jesus' knees would, were moderately flexed. They would take the left foot and they would press it backward against the right foot with the toes down and they would drive a nail through them into the wood. Then they would uh, step away, inspect their work, and Jesus would be hanging on the cross. And that is a part of what is summarized by the six words, and when they had crucified him. Let's take a moment of silence and just meditate on Jesus being crucified. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The rule was that whatever possessions the crucified victim happened to have, they became the possession of the executioners. Well, there was more than one. And so how do you divide the limited clothing that Jesus had? And the text here says that they played a little game. They rolled dice, essentially. Fulfilling, by the way, Psalm 22. After they divide the spoils, they sat down to guard him. Now you can say, well, why guard him? I mean, he's hanging on the cross. Why have guards? 
Realize, friends, we tend to think of an execution, and even in our day, some states practice this, we tend to think of an execution as an event, like it's a moment, like the guy is alive, the electric chair or injection or whatever, and then he's dead. Crucifixion is the opposite, and it has the opposite intent, okay? The goal is not to just kill somebody. They could have done that easily with a sword. The goal of crucifixion is a slow agonizing death that said something to anybody that was watching about the power of Rome. These deaths on the cross could take days. Some men survived days hanging on that cross. And because of that, a prized victim like Jesus needed to be guarded lest his disciples rush the cross and take him down before he dies. And so they sit down and they set guard over him. Notice, nailed over his head is one of, if not the greatest irony in all of history. The Romans would put the charge against the victim, write it on a piece of wood, and place it over the victim's head. And that's what they did with Jesus. And here is the charge against Jesus. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, we know Pilate had designated this to be what it said, so we see in that that what Pilate was wanting to do is he was essentially mocking the Jews. This is Jesus. This is your king. Or to say it this way, Jews, hey Jews, is this the best you got? Look at what the best you got. Look what ends up happening to him when we think that maybe he thinks he's a king higher than Caesar. This is your king, Jews. Congratulations. And the irony, of course, is that it was a billboard of truth. This was Jesus, the king of the Jews, and the king of the Romans, and the king of everybody, hanging on that cross. What a poignant, like you just, there's so many things in the story of Jesus that no human being could ever come up with this stuff, right? No playwright could ever write this kind of poignancy and prophecy and all of it comes together in the story of Jesus. Look at verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. These are the the famous thieves on the cross and they... uh, Uh, Robber is an accurate translation, but they were probably more likely revolutionaries, or we might call them guerrillas, maybe terrorists, if you want to say it that way. Terrorists against Rome, hardcore rebels. One is on his left, one is on his right, with Jesus in the middle. There's Jesus dying for sinners among sinners. And it's now 9 o'clock in the morning. And what happens beginning at 9 o'clock after Jesus is up is that the, the, the mockery and the insults begin. Verse 39, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In this text here, we have three different groups that just begin insulting and mocking Jesus. We have, uh, we have the general public, we have the religious leaders, and we have uh, actually two that are mentioned there. We could add a few others, of course, the, the, the uh, robbers around him also. The general public picks up the accusation that was made against him in his trial. You said that if you destroy the temple, you could rebuild it in three days? Really? Like this has taken Herod all of these years to build this temple, and you are going to rebuild it in three days? Essentially, they're saying, you're a nut job. You call yourself a rabbi? You're like a great man, son of God? You can't build this in three days. Now, we know what Jesus was talking about. Three days, that sound familiar? He was talking about that salvation that the temple represented that he would accomplish in the three days of, for between his, his cross and his resurrection. We know what he meant, but it offended the public. And of course, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees here. This is the moment they have been waiting for. This is the moment they've been conspiring about. This is the moment they pay off one of his inner circle to make happen. And now, here's their moment. They're so happy. Their nemesis, their enemy, is writhing on a cross. Like, like he just, he can't get off now. What's going to happen to you now, Jesus? Look at you now, Jesus. You saved other people. You can't save yourself. They acknowledge, by the way, in that statement, his miracles. You raised Lazarus from the dead, and now you're going to die. Save yourself if you're the son of God, if you're Mr. Big Shot. Come on, man. Even the criminals dying with him heap abuse on him. And the picture that we, that we have here is the complete rejection by men. Every category of that society, from the religious to the general public to even the criminals, they all reject Jesus. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour by the Jewish clock was noon. Their day began at 6 a.m., so six hours later is noon. From noon to 3 o'clock, the text says that darkness came over the entire land. It was almost as if God in heaven just turned the lights out on the moment here that is happening. What does this mean? What does darkness mean? Darkness is a sign of judgment. Darkness is, if you remember, God's plague in Egypt Darkness. What is hell called? Outer darkness. And that sign of judgment comes down upon the earth. And you say, well, who's being judged here? Are we being judged? No, we're not being judged. Jesus is being judged. This is the beginning of substitutionary atonement. This is is the moment where God the Father now begins to treat Jesus in that sin substitute way as if he was personally responsible for the sins of the world. You might say, hey, what does it feel to be, what's it feel like to be a rapist? What's it feel like to kill a family member? 
What's it feel like through treachery to do some terrible thing? Those experiences of guilt are what Jesus is now feeling, not just an isolated incident, but he dies for the sins of the world. Or to say this way, friend, what he experienced and felt in his conscience was your sin. This is not just some theoretical thing that happened that has no connection to your life. Think about the thing, Christian, that you are the most ashamed of. The thing in your life that if you could go back and do it differently, you would do it. The thing you don't want anybody to know. That guilt that you feel over that thing. Jesus feels it hanging there on the cross. He is bearing the sins of the world. The Apostle Paul would write it this way, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bears our sin guilt. Friends, as, 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 as sobering and as uh, interesting as Jesus' physical sufferings are, the Bible doesn't really dwell on that. The Bible dwells on this, that he bore our guilt, that he bore our shame, that he bore what we deserve, the wrath of God. That darkness represented God's wrath being poured out on Jesus, and he bears our sin. Yes, the nails hurt, and yes, he was dehydrated, and yes, he was exhausted pushing up and down on that cross. But none of that really was what the big thing was. The big thing was he was sin. He was guilt. The holy son of God. Sinful. Verse 46, at about the ninth hour, three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry, known as the cry of dereliction, the cry of the Son of God to God the Father, it is the only place in all of Scripture that Jesus refers to God not as Father, but as God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 again. And what is happening here in this moment is beyond our ability to comprehend because there are mysteries within the Trinity that we just like blow our mind. We can't understand it. I don't understand it. But the little bit that we can understand is that somehow within the Trinity and the dual humanity deity of Jesus, what is happening in this moment is that God the Father rejects the, sin, the now sinful humanity of Jesus. Now, he does not reject him as son. He does not reject his deity, or we have a broken trinity. That didn't happen. But the fellowship that the son, Jesus, had known with his heavenly father for all of eternity, that fellowship is broken in a way that Jesus feels forsaken by God. Why have you forsaken me? And we have here the ultimate and really the only truly one that matters, the rejection that matters. 
He is rejected, not simply by the Pharisees, not by the Romans, not by the masses, not by the thieves on the cross around him. He is rejected by his heavenly Father. And that's the devastating one. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani sounds enough like Elijah that those that are standing around think, they don't realize he's calling out to his heavenly father, they think he's calling out to the, uh, the great prophet Old Testament prophet Elijah. And so they say, hey, he's calling out for Elijah to help him. Let's sit back and let's see if, the, if Elijah shows up here. Okay? And now here is the sacred moment, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Here's how John records it. Matthew just says loud voice. John tells us what he said. It is finished, is what he said. Luke says it this way. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did you hear that? Father. Three hours earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But at the very end, after substitutionary atonement has been paid for, he is once again, Father. Father. Matthew tells us that he did this with a loud voice. Why is that important? I thought he was weak. I thought he was unable to breathe. I thought he, I thought he was about to, to die. Why note that it was with a loud voice that he yielded up his spirit? Here's why, friends. It reinforces the majestic truth that Jesus died on the cross. He did not die from the cross. He died on the cross, but the cross did not take his life. Think of it with me a second. The nails didn't take his life. He didn't die by suffocation like all the other crucified victims did. He didn't die from exposure. He didn't die from hunger. He didn't die from the piercing that the soldiers would do into his side. The Romans didn't kill him, and Pilate didn't kill him, and the Pharisees didn't kill him, and the crowd didn't kill him. Notice, he gave up his life. He yielded his spirit. What does that mean? It means he died willingly. He died of his own accord at his own time because he chose to die and yielded up his spirit. So friends, what is this all about? I mean, why all this record and why all of this drama and why does all of this make any difference at all? If we know the the Romans, they killed like, they crucified like tens of thousands of people. Why this one guy, this one victim, why does his crucifixion amongst all the others matter so much? Well, it doesn't matter if he was just another man, if he was just another condemned. But if the sign had it right, Jesus, the King of the Jews, if Gabriel had it right when he said to Mary, you shall name him Jesus, if the angels had it right when they announced his birth, 
If Matthew had it right that he was the Messiah fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, if Paul had it right that God made him sin, if he was Jesus, the Son of God, this moment in history means, friends, that God died for you. He died for you, willingly giving up his life. It means that he died in your place. His death was no waste. He wasn't a victim. He loved you, and he suffered for you, and he was crucified for you, and ultimately he died for you in your place. To save you from the wrath of God against your sin and mine. He experienced darkness. Listen. He experienced darkness so that you would not experience eternal darkness known as hell. He felt God's wrath so you can feel God's love forever. He was forsaken by God so you can be accepted by God. He died so that you can live forever. And all of this hangs on one condition. There is one condition that God places for all of the benefit of what Jesus has done to come to you forever. And that condition is that you must repent of your sins and place your faith for salvation and a right relationship with God upon what Jesus did in him alone. And all who trust and believe in Jesus, all who call in the name of the Lord, shall be saved and are saved on the basis of what Jesus did at Calvary. And I wonder today if perhaps you are like the crowds who thought that his claims were unbelievable. Or might you be like the Romans for whom Jesus was a threat to their autonomy and authority, freedom to do what they want? Or are you like the religious leaders whose trust was entirely in their own self-righteousness? And this is my prayer right now, that we all might become like Matthew, who wrote this in the first place. Do you know the story of Matthew? Tax collector, Roman tax collector, famous for treachery and greed and loving money. Jesus called him as a disciple out of that lifestyle. This Matthew that writes this account, no friend of the Jews, no friend of the prophets, but now writing an account to convince you today, spanning 2,000 years, to convince us today that this Jesus that died on the cross was the Savior of the world the Son of God, the one who offers salvation to any who will put their trust in him and will believe. And we see in this that this isn't, this isn't history, this plain like writing history. This isn't just biography. This is gospel. This is written to convince us of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and that Jesus went through all of this so that Eternal life could become a reality in your life.
He loves you. This is a love story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what the answer to that question is? Why did God forsake Jesus? So that your sins could be paid for. That's why. So there is a way that sinners can be forgiven for their sins. To have a right relationship with God restored. To have the hope and promise of eternal life. The conquering of death and life forever with God. And I wonder if it's true for you.